We're deep into a teaching series that we've been in for a few weeks now. You were hoping we were done, but we're just getting started on my weeks here at the podium. And my dream for this experience is that this is much more than an isolated teaching series that maybe we reference a few times as we talk about in the future as we talk about the past. But remember that series. I hope it's bigger than that. Um, I'm really praying and approaching this series um, and this topic and the conversations that have come out of that with the hopes that this is kind of a turning point in the story of our church, that this will become uh, just find it, that this topic will find a place in the culture of the way we do church and that will have lasting impact on that. This series called, is called Emotionally Healthy and I know it seems like a touchy-feely uh, kind of topic for the large group Sunday morning setting. Uh, but in the language of the 90s, uh, we're really getting in touch with our feelings here, and we're okay with that. And honestly, I think we're into some important stuff. And uh, it sounds like, to me, the feedback I've gotten that some of you are having some really important conversations. Uh, and, and I get the sense that it's doing some important things um, in the wiring and the fabric of who we are as individuals and who we are as couples and who we are as households and who we are as a church. At the same time, I know that for a lot of you, uh, this is stirring up some emotional pain, and I'm well aware of this, so I'm trying to be sensitive to that. That pain is right, it's good, it's necessary, it's healthy, it's a little awkward, and it sucks a little bit, right? So I acknowledge that. So I just want to say that if you're in that spot, maybe some of the things that I've said already or some of the things that you've discussed with people over coffee or maybe things you've discussed in a small group setting as a result of what we've been talking about here, that for you it's stirring up some stuff that's uh, maybe scary or painful or uncomfortable uh, or maybe it's new because you've never thought of it in that way before or maybe it feels new because you thought you buried it a long time ago. A couple things. First of all, press into that. Don't run away from that. Don't numb it. Don't run away from it. Don't ignore it. Don't dismiss it. Don't try to escape from it. Press into it. Do, do as Jesus did a few, a few weeks ago. Just sit in the pain and take a little time. A couple weeks ago, we talked about generational sin or generational patterns. Uh, listen, you don't listen to 45 minutes of teaching, sing some songs, go out for lunch, stop at Walmart, journal a little bit, have one conversation with someone, and go, there, done with that. Generational sin, check. Generational patterns, check. Issues from my family of origin, done. Some of this stuff takes months, takes years to process to land in a place of health, and that's fine. Just press into it. Stay with it. Don't give up on what the Holy Spirit may have begun in you. Then secondly, I would say just open up to your community. Uh, for me, I'm exploring these topics a little deeper with a group of people and with some of my community outside of this setting. And we're, we're getting together on purpose and to talk about these things. And I don't think I could overemphasize how important that is, that whatever God is stirring in you, that, when, that you would open up and, to your community and get intentional in community and have these conversations. Um, in fact, I'm writing questions <coughs> that you could use in your conversations with one another after each of these messages and we're using them in our small group and I would be happy to make those available to you if they're questions that you would like to use for self-reflection or for a conversation over coffee or for a small group environment um, I would be happy to make those available to you you can send me an email here's my address it's Todd ready at faithcommunityfellowship.com all right and you're like I have to type all that out one time and then GBL will remember it so uh, just you can get the questions that way, uh, gather some people together, and get real, 
And I just uh, want to challenge you to do that. It's in those intentional env environments where we can really hash this stuff out. So finally, I'd like to say, uh, make sure that if you find yourself in a place where you need help, get it, all right? Uh, make sure you don't process these things alone, but that you work through whatever this might stir up in you in the healthiest way possible. And so just continue to let Jesus remake you. And we said in week one that it's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature, that emotional health and spiritual health aren't the same thing, but you really can't separate them. You can't expect to be healthy emotionally while remaining unhealthy spiritually and vice versa, because following Jesus isn't just about a spiritual life, whatever that means to you. It's about all of life. It's about the spirit of God in all of life. And we believe that uh, it's part of Jesus' heart uh, for you to capture and discover, or maybe to recapture and rediscover your humanness in its healthiest form as you follow him. That's my challenge to get us started. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us together for this time this morning. We ask that you would just have your way in our hearts, quiet our minds. Pray that our hearts would be open to the promptings and the voice of your Holy Spirit in us. Uh, give us courage to face what might be painful or might, might even surprise us about ourselves. Uh, may we be in a place where we're open to what the Holy Spirit has to say for us. We want to be as healthy as possible in every possible way so that we may more, be more effective as followers of Jesus in carrying out this mission that you've given us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Chris mentioned the Bible app. So if you have the Bible app or you use that on your phone, you're probably already open there. You can uh, look up the scripture as we go along or you can use the event feature is down in the menu in the lower right-hand side and you select events. As long as your locations are on, you'll find us there and you can follow along. I've got all today's scripture already there. I've got some points from the message and uh, maybe a video at the end. So to get us started this morning, I want to read a story about a guy named John. We know him as John, depending on your church tradition, we know him as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. Um, and I was ordained in the Baptist church, so of course he was John the Baptist, because that's how God intended. But this is a, <laughs> it depends on what you read. I'm going to refer to him as John today, because that was his name. The Baptist, or the baptizer, uh, is a title. Um, and I don't even think that he put that on his business card. I think we just gave him that title. So th this is uh, found in the Gospel of John, written by a different John, so it's a little confusing. Uh, but I want to read some in chapter 1 of the Gospel of John uh, to pick up this narrative in verse 19. So we're going to put this on the screen. You can follow along. <clears throat> now this is John's testimony. When the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Now, if you're new to this context, we're kind of jumping into the middle of this ancient setting. The priests and the Levites are like the religious police in a highly religious culture. And they, I don't know if you've ever been in any highly religious cultures that have religious police. Some of us have. And they, they make the trek all the way from the temple in Jerusalem to the Jordan River, which is out kind of in the middle of nowhere, to talk to this guy they've heard about, this shaggy-haired, wild-looking prophet named John. They'd heard that people were calling him John the Baptizer, and people were coming by the hundreds, maybe even by the thousands, to hear him preach, to hear him prophesy, and to be baptized by him. And the religious police came to interrogate John. They grill him with question after question after question, and we read this in verse 20. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. So apparently question one was, are you the Messiah? Are you the promised one? Are you the one we've been waiting for for generations now to come and deliver us from our oppressors, for the Babylonians and now the Romans? Are you the one? And he's like, no, that's not me. 
Verse 21. They asked him, well then, who, who are you? Are you Elijah? And that's a weird question, but here's the deal. There's a prophecy at the end of the Old Testament <coughs> in the book of Malachi about how the prophet Elijah would come again right before the age to come. So they said, are you Elijah? Is that prophecy about you? And he says, I am not Elijah. Then they're like, are you the prophet, capital P? There was a prophecy even earlier in the Old Testament in the writings of Moses in the book of Deuteronomy about how a prophet would one day rise up to speak to Israel on behalf of God himself. So they said, are you this prophet? He answers, no, verse 22. Finally, they said, well, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? I wonder how we'd answer that question, right? Verse 23, John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet. So this next line is a quote from Isaiah chapter 40. Quote, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. So I'm the guy that the prophet Isaiah was writing about hundreds of years ago, about six or 700 years ago. My job, my calling, my purpose is to get Israel ready for the Messiah. Verse 29, jump down a few verses. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one that I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Skip down to verse 34. I've seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. So, so what's John doing here? What he's doing is he's living out his purpose. This is his calling from God to get Israel ready for the Messiah, to say Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised one. Then look what happens next, verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. So here's, he's a prophet, and he has a following like a rabbi, even though he wasn't technically a rabbi. He had people who were following him, supporting him, helping him in the work of his ministry as he traveled all over that part of Israel. Verse 36. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said again, look, the Lamb of God. And when his two disciples heard him say this, <laughs> they followed Jesus. Don't miss this. That could be translated, they became Jesus' disciples. So two of John's disciples, when they see Jesus, they abandon John and they start following Jesus instead. I, I kind of wonder what that would have been like emotionally for John. Turn over to chapter 3, not long after this happened, chapter 3, verse 22. After all this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because there were plenty of water there and people were coming and being baptized. In case you're wondering, in case you're interested in these things, uh, sometime after the Babylonian captivity, um, baptism or immersion, as the word literally means, became a customary practice in converting to Judaism. Uh, it finds its roots, and again, as growing up in a Baptist church, we didn't like, we'd like to think we came up with the idea of baptism, but it came out of the Babylonian captivity. finds its roots actually in the Mosaic law, especially in the rites of purification. So the idea that John was baptizing, and according to this passage, John and his or Jesus and his disciples were baptizing too, it's most likely that these were people who were, one, either Gentiles, converting to the Jewish faith, or people who the Gospels refers to as sinners. These are people who were Jewish by birth, but hadn't been practicing their faith. So maybe those are people they were baptizing, people who are coming back to their faith. Uh, verse 24. This is kind of spoiler alert. This is before John was put in prison. Like, great, why would you say that? Now we know where the story is going. Verse 25. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. 
They came to John and said, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. So first John's disciples abandoned him for Jesus at his inner circle. And then everyone, so like everyone in this massive crowd, hundreds, maybe even thousands of people abandoned John to follow Jesus. And you would think that John would have a negative reaction to this. Verse 27. To this, John replied, a person can only receive what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. So I've been saying this all along, and you keep asking me, and I keep telling you, I'm not the Messiah. Verse 29, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it's now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. So to recap. John the baptizer is the hot ticket in town, this edgy, non-traditional, sharp-toothed agitator, this prophet out in the wilderness, and people coming from all over the region to listen to him because word is spread. But his job is to get Israel ready for the coming Messiah. And then when the Messiah comes, or maybe it would be more accurate to say when the Messiah is revealed, because John was only about six months older than Jesus. In fact, their mothers were cousins. And so chances are they spent time together as children. And when Jesus is revealed as the Messiah... John is essentially out of a job, and his influence is gone, and the large crowds don't gather around him anymore. But he's not bitter, he's not resentful, he's not angry or insecure or jealous or depressed. John was able to celebrate the fact that Jesus was more, quote, successful than he was, which begs the question, what about you and what about me? How do we handle that? Are we able to celebrate when other people are more successful than we are. The reality is that the American ideal that all people are created equal is true, but only kind of, right? I mean, look around the room. Are are these people really your equal? Come on. (laughs) We're all equal. Sorry, you're not like, where's he going? It sounds like blasphemy. I don't mean to disparage any of our founding documents, but listen to me. We're all equal in value. That was long true before the U.S. Declaration of Independence. All human beings are created in the image of God. That's what gives us value. The hard truth that none of us likes to talk about is that we are not all equal in talent or in gifting, right? I know this cuts, it it just cuts across the tide of our self-esteem culture. But some people, this may be the first time you've heard this, and I'm sorry that you have to hear it from me, but some people are better at some stuff than you are. I know, I'm sorry. Hold on to your participation trophy, it's fine. How do you really feel about that, Todd? Some people... Some people are smarter than other people. Some people are more athletic than other people. Some of us are smarter and more athletic than other people. I know know it doesn't seem fair, uh, but that's that's just the way it is. I'm sorry about that. But some people are more musical than other people. Some people are more outgoing. Some people are even more charming than other people are. Some people are funnier than other people. And that's all okay. And we really know that's true. 
but it's incredibly hard for some of us, and it's in particular, if you're driven at all by a competitive nature, it's really hard for you to accept that, and you see someone else do something better than you can do it, and you feel all of a sudden less than, and you feel insecure, and you feel pain. And because we live in the digital age, which is cool, I'm glad we live in the digital age, I'm, I'm really, I think it's awesome, but social media, mostly Facebook and Instagram for this audience, is just gas on the fire of insecurity because there's this dangerous formula. You start off with unrealistic expectations, first of all, don't we? I mean, we do. That's the idealism of youth. So we start off with, and you're like, yeah, I kind of remember that. It was a long time ago, and boy, it was that, those, that came crashing down. We start off with unrealistic expectations, and then we take the minuscule percentage of people who are widely successful at a young age. So we take the I don't know, the Justin Beavers and the Mark Zuckerbergs and the Kylie Jenners, and we let their stories be the norm. And then we carefully curate an image of ourselves that is not based in reality, and we blast that to the world through social media. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. We broadcast the highlights of our lives. Right? Here's me on vacation. Here's me with my Bible and my coffee, having my quiet time. It's important that Instagram knows this. Here's my latest purchase. Here's us on date night. Here, and I, if I see you, a picture of date night, you've been hidden. I'm, just, I'm done. Can't do it anymore. It's date night. I don't need to know about it. It's your date night. Go have a date night. Leave me out of it. <laughs> <sighs> Whew, I need to slow down and like, let my blood pressure come down. But uh, you know, here's a screenshot of my latest this, that, something out, walk, bike ride, whatever. We don't show... Here's me in my cubicle on Monday at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and I hate my life. <laughs> Here's my 13-year-old car on the side of the road that broke down again. I, this car's so great. Aren't you jealous? Here's my sweet, sweet middle schooler giving me attitude. We don't broadcast these things. My point is that in engaging this uh, image management on social media, we are robbed, listen, by the great thief of joy, that is comparison. Let me just back that up. It's not original with me, so I'm going to read it again. When we engage in image management, we're robbed by this great thief of joy that is comparison. Because then comes insecurity. Oh, man, I need a better job. I need a newer car. I need a new spouse. I need better kids. I don't know what to do about that. But we're... <laughs> We're so insecure, and then comes disappointment. My job that was good enough last week now is not good enough for me. My stuff isn't good enough. My marriage isn't good enough. My kids aren't good enough. I'm not good enough. Then comes discontentment. And instead of feeling gratitude, thank you, God, for what is my life, contentment and joy, instead, we lean into a feeling of entitlement. I mean, come on, look what they have. God, did you see what they put on Instagram? Do you see what they have? That's not fair. Look what they have. I deserve better than what I've got. I deserve some of that. So maybe now it's jealousy. Maybe it's even sadness because of the life that somebody else has or more likely because of the life that someone else, listen, wants you to believe they have. So whether you're 22 and you're on Instagram all the time or whether you're 70 and you have no idea what I'm talking about, listen, all of us fall into this trap. We're all prone to this temptation, even if it plays out in a different way. Because no matter how successful you are in any given area of your life, there will always be someone who is more successful. 
And even if you are number one in the world at your thing, there's no one in the world better than you at fill in the blank. It's just a matter of time before someone comes along and is better than you at that thing, whatever your thing is. We see it in sports all the time, right? This is the thing about John the baptizer that we don't talk about a whole lot. John was able to celebrate Jesus' surge in popularity, even when it meant his own decline in popularity, and listen, his dwindling influence. How is he able to do that? Well, I would argue three things. So here's the first mini outline. That John knew his identity, he knew his calling, and he knew his limitations. Let's talk about that. His identity, his calling, and his limitations. First, he knew his identity. He said, I am, you want to know who I am? If you would stop talking for a minute, I'll tell you who I am. I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. He knew who he was. And like, I'm the voice. Not to be confused with Bonavox, who is the good voice, but I am the voice. And if, I'm sorry you missed that reference about the 80s. Uh, John says, uh, I'm the voice. I'm the one the prophet spoke about. Because of that, he knew who he wasn't. Are you the Messiah? Nope. It's not like, hmm, maybe I am. Or maybe I could be. No, I'm not. Are you Elijah? Absolutely not. Sorry to disappoint. He wasn't trying to be the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet, capital P, because he knew who he was. And because of that, he knew who he was not. His identity was grounded in Scripture, which is cool. So his vision for his life was saturated by the truth of Scripture, I think that's pretty awesome. I wish yours and mine were that clear. And it could be. He knew, listen, who God created him to be. Thomas Merton calls that your true self. But so often we don't live out of our true self. Instead, we spend so much time and energy, physically and emotionally, spinning our wheels trying to be somebody that we're not. And that looks different for all sorts of people. But at some point, most of us stray from our true identity, from who God created us to be. And the fact is that we waste so much emotional energy trying to be people we're not, and many times it's to impress people that we don't even, uh, who don't even care. So first, John knew his identity. Secondly, he knew his calling. He said, I'm the voice of the one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, because he knew who he was, and he also knew his calling or what he was supposed to do. If you've ever, ever struggled with this, and, and here's the deal, like everybody does. If you're, like, you think you're alone because you haven't figured out what the thing is that God's called you to do, at some point everybody struggles with this. And I'm telling you, it is worth, it is worth wrestling with, um, even though it's frustrating at times. It's worth all that emotional and spiritual energy to wrestle with God and to pray and fast and then take some steps. Here's the thing. I've found one of the best ways to uh, figure out your calling is just to live. Just live your life. You'll do some stuff and it'll suck the life out of you. And you're like, oh, so my calling is not to work. No, that's not what I mean. Like, <laughs> let's hang with me here, okay? Yeah. You'll do other stuff and you'll come alive. I'm like, oh, vacation 52 weeks of the year. Great, I finally discovered my calling. Sometimes we need to learn who we aren't so we can figure out who we are. And we need to discover what we shouldn't be doing to learn what we ought to be doing, what it is that God made us to do. I know this is a tough one and most people struggle with this. You are not alone on this one, but just let me give you one thought on this. I would argue that calling, whatever you want to call it, it's, uh, calling is just as much, if not more, internal as it is external. Meaning, 
It's not only about what God has called you to go out and do outside of yourself. It's about who God has made you to be. That's something inside yourself. And then living that out. So it's not only about what God has called you to go out and do, but it's about who God has made you to be and then living that out. I think you're more likely, listen, uh, this is something we tend to miss in the church setting. But I think you're more likely to discover your calling uh, from things like personality assessments, things like Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram or anything like that. Then you are, like, if you're waiting for a Moses and the burning bush kind of experience, I mean, if you have one of those, drop what you're doing and do the thing the voice tells you to do. If you're out hiking in Acadia and there's a bush on fire and it's not consumed, the voice is talking, telling you to do, you better just quit what you're doing and go do the thing. Anyway, that um, could happen, I suppose. It's happened before, right? So you're like, it could happen, but don't hold out for that. Um, and when I say that could happen, I'm not even being facetious. You could have a moment in time with God. I know several of you have talked to have had that moment in time. You might even know the date and the circumstances. And you had, like, it was almost as if God tapped you on the shoulder or God spoke to you in an audible voice, or maybe he did. Who am I to argue with that? It's as clear as the noonday sun what you are to do in that moment. And maybe in that moment determines what you're to do for the rest of your life. If you have the burning bush experience, don't, don't mess with the skills test or the temperament analysis. Don't mess with any of that. Just go do what you're called to do. Later, you can learn about your personality and your temperament and your gifts and your weaknesses and your unique wiring. That's all helpful, but lean into your calling. So anyway, here's the thing about calling. Calling isn't something you decide. <clears throat> calling is something you discover. It's something you unearth. It's something that's revealed to you. Sometimes, after looking long and hard and turning over a ton of rocks. It's usually something you excavate from deep within your person. And listen, this is tough to do alone. So get with your community. Get your people involved in that to give you some clarity. Get some people who know you well and love you. Uh, get them involved in that process. And, and, and of course, the Holy Spirit has a role in it too. Remember, because this is so important, what we are called to do isn't always what we want to do. Again, I reference Moses. <laughs> he didn't, like, oh, that's great, God. Yeah, I've always wanted to go confront Pharaoh. That sounds like a great idea, you know? And sometimes we have to grieve the reality that we can't do what we want. Sometimes we have to grieve the reality that what we dreamt of isn't going to be. Sometimes we have to grieve the death of a dream in order to accept and move on to God's dream for us. That dream that's in line with what God has created us to do. And then I just want to talk about limitations for a minute because that was on our little mini outline there. John knows his limitations. In John chapter 3, verse 27, he said, a person can only receive what is given them from heaven. Um, some, of them need to, some of us need to repeat that single line of John 3, verse 27. We need to repeat that to ourselves every day. A person can only receive what's given them from heaven. Because we've been raised in a 20th and 21st century North America where we're taught you can be and you can do anything you want. You, and it's for the people over 50 who are chuckling at that. Um, 
You want to be an astronaut? Go for it. NASA would be lucky to have you. You want to be the president of the United States? You can do it, unless you're born in Canada. Too bad for you. Want to be, it's, I mean, my dream was crushed. But anyway, you want to be a professional athlete? Just work hard. Devote yourself to your sport. Oh, here's a trophy. Thanks for showing up. Want to be a musician? Anybody can do it. You want to fill stadiums on a world tour? Just work hard. That's all it takes. You want to start a business and make billions of dollars? Just, that's so doable. You want Just apply yourself. You want your PhD? Just put the time in. You can do it. And they just hand those out left and right. That's the culture we've grown up in. And on one hand, I'm thankful for it because you grew up... Uh, Believing in the American dream, whatever that means to you. You know, what's your dream? Go for it. That, that can be a motivator. And, and Walt Disney is one of my favorite creatives, but the idea that if you can dream it, you can do it, it may sound great, makes for great, you know, uh, movies and fairy tales and amazing immersive theme park experiences, but most of the time it's not really true. Okay? Because all I can be is myself. All I can be is what God shaped me for. I can't be anything I want to be. And I can't do anything that I dream I can do. I'm pretty sure me and all my friends had the same dream growing up in Eastern Canada in the 70s and 80s. And that was to be a professional hockey player for the Montreal Canadiens. That was the dream, correct? No. And if you, and <laughs> that wasn't your, the kids, and I said 70s and 80s, so uh, anyway. <laughs> I know. Um, we can't, I can't go there. Um, that didn't really play out for me. It was so close, though, so close, so close. Um, it wasn't, and then I discovered my knack for preaching. And now, um, that too. It wasn't for lack of trying, though. The first problem, though, was that I'm not a great skater. I love to skate, but I'm not even the best skater in my family. You know, I enjoyed most things athletic, but that wasn't my gift. Be quiet. <laughs> and no matter, no. <laughs> He's like, wasn't your gift? No amount of practice, no amount of dedication, no amount of love for any particular sport, no amount of opportunity would ever change that. The reality is that for all of us, there are some things we can do really well. It just comes naturally to you. It's how God made you. There are other things that honestly, you're not good at them at all. No matter how badly you want to be good at them, no matter how hard you work at them, there are some things that aren't going to happen for you. You're like, wow, this is really positive and uplifting. <laughs> I know, right? There are some roles that we flourish in. There are some roles where we come alive, where we're on the edge of our seat, where we talk about it, we become animated. We talk about it, we, we lose track of time. When we're doing it, it's like, oh, the sun went down? I didn't notice that. We wake up and we think, I can't believe I get to do this. There are other roles that cause us to just wither up and want to die. And that's okay, because we have to learn to see both our capacity and our limitations. Both of those things, your capacity and your limitations, are indicators of God's calling on our lives. Your capacity is what you're good at what you're made for, where you thrive, where you come alive, you're passionate about it, gives you life, you're effective in that role. It's a sign of what God made you to do. And we learn, need to learn to think the exact same thing about our limitations. Because we all have limitations in different areas. There's a threshold that we reach where we don't have the capacity to go any further. So let's talk about those limitations when it comes to developing uh, or discovering uh, what we are called to and what we're called to do. So first, 
uh, is in limitations is your personality. Now, hold on. <laughs> like, what are you saying? Your personality or your temperament, um, this is how you're wired, okay? Do you have thick skin or are you oversensitive? Are you an introvert or are you an extrovert? Are you insecure or are you overconfident? Some of these things can be uh, weaknesses that you've never addressed or improved. It might just be how you're wired. There's nothing wrong with that. Another limitation is your season of life. If you have young children, well, enough said, okay? Right? You know, you're like, no kidding. If you have elderly parents, I mean, you're here for the 45 minutes of free childcare because you're like, I can't do it anymore. Uh, if, you, if you have elderly parents who you care for, if you're dealing with illness yourself, if you're in a season of prep for the future, like college or grad school, all those seasons of life come with limitations. And then next is just your life situation. Your relational status can be a limitation. And you're like, no kidding. So like if you're single, sometimes that can be a limitation. If you're married, Listen, that can be more of a limitation. Uh, I've read this, that when you get married, you cut your free time in half. And some of you have been married so long and you've got, you know, whatever, you're like, free time. No, listen, there's, I, I, this is what happens. When, when you get married, you cut your free time in half. Then you have kids, you have your first child, cut your free time in half again. So if you're a single person and you sleep eight hours a day and you work eight hours a day, that leaves you with eight free hours a day, right? And you get married, cut that in half, so you're down to four hours. And then you have your first child, cut that in half again, so now you're down to two free hours in a day. Have a second or third or fourth child and you can just start counting down to empty nest because it's not going to happen for you. Just discretionary time, done for the next 18 years, okay? And none of this is bad. In fact, I would argue it's really good. But it just is. It's a reality of your life situation. And it impacts your ability to pursue other stuff. That's neither good nor bad. It just is. It's a limitation. Oh, lastly, your physical and emotional capacity. How much can you do and stay physically and emotionally healthy? This is different for every single person. We need to understand that and extend grace to people when it comes to that. Some people have an extra large plate, meaning they can do a lot. Some people have like a saucer. Doesn't take a lot for them to be overwhelmed. And then it might just depend on what it is. Some people have a large capacity for tasks. You know, their to-do list is a mile long and they manage to get it done every single day, but they have a small capacity for relationships. Other people have a large capacity for relationships. They just can't seem to ever get anything done. Either way, whichever is true of you, when you go beyond your capacity, you wake up the next morning tired grouchy, maybe depressed, because you're not leaning into the things that keep you emotionally healthy. So it depends on what it is, but still the point is we all have limits, which leads me to this week's principle. So each week in the series, we've landed on or kind of drawn out at least one principle. It's kind of the, I think, the takeaway for each week on this discussion of emotional health. So the first one a few weeks ago was that it is impossible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. The second was that whatever is beneath the surface provides an opportunity for intimacy with our Heavenly Father. The third principle was that emotionally healthy people have discovered how to break the power of the past. Remember we talked about our families of origin a couple weeks ago. So today, this is principle number four, is that emotionally healthy people have learned to receive the gift of limits. Receive the gift of limits. And I love this language, that we receive it. It's not something imposed on us. We receive it. Most of us don't willingly receive our limits. We fight them. 
We push past them. We strive to overcome them. We, we, we pretend they don't exist. That, man, that's denial. And we don't, we don't want to receive our limits. We, we're conditioned to push through them. And sometimes, listen, we're rewarded for ignoring them. But when we do come to terms with our limits, we don't always think of them as a gift. Look at where in your life where you tend to get overwhelmed. Look back at where you were overwhelmed in the last week. In that moment, did you think, thank you, Jesus, that I can't handle this. This is great. Thank you, God, that I'm not as capable as so-and-so. Thank you that I'm not as smart as you-know-who. Thank you that I can't figure this out on my own. I doubt that's how he responded, right? Most of us don't think of our limits as a gift but as a curse, and here's the thing. Emotionally healthy people understand the limits that God has given them, and they joyfully receive them. And as a result, they are not frenzied, they are not anxious, they are not hurried, they are not busy, 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 they are not overwhelmed, they are marked by contentment, they are marked by purposefulness, they are marked by joy. They don't, need the, they don't feel the need to try to please everybody else. They don't feel the need to try to be anyone else. They have a sense of confidence in who God created them to be. So we need to learn to see our limits not as something to go to war with, not as something to overcome, not as something to be ashamed of, but as markers to lead us and guide us into our identity, into our true self, into our calling and into our purpose. Because when we fight the limits that were set in place over our lives by our Creator, by our loving Heavenly Father, when we fight our limits, we end up emotionally unhealthy. So when you're wondering, am I emotionally unhealthy, ask yourself, am I living, living within my God-given boundaries? Am I trying to be something that I'm not? Am I trying to succeed in an area just to prove myself? How much time and energy do I give to my image management? And you might find yourself sitting there and almost kind of agreeing with me, but part of you is like, yes, but I'm not quite there so how do we get there? How do we get to the place where we receive, joyfully receive, the gift of limits? Well, first, have to figure out, we have to figure out uh, what to say yes to. Right? This is, uh, this is about our identity. Think about the story of John the baptizer. This is about our identity. It's about our calling. It's about how God wired us. It's what he shaped us to do. Then, in conjunction with learning what to say yes to, we have to learn the art of saying no. A lot really good things. We need to be ruthless and relentless, but nice, in the art of saying no to those things that take us beyond our God-given limits and crowd out our ability to thrive in the areas where he's gifted us and called us. Sometimes I think the reason we struggle with landing in a place of calling and purposefulness is because we have pursued things beyond the limits that God put on us. you ever wondered why do we even talk about this? This idea of saying yes to the right things and saying no to some things. Why do we even have to talk about this? I, talk, I, I find myself in a lot of conversations with people about this because, listen, the temptation is to say yes as much as possible. Here's what that, here's what that says about us. The temptation is to believe that we can be omnipresent, which is to be all places at the same time. And to believe that we can be omnipotent, which means all-powerful. I can do anything, I can do everything, I can do it all. 
and to believe that we can be omniscient, which means that we're all-knowing because I just know it all, ask me. We don't even need to ask for any advice or any counsel. Major life decisions, no problem. I know what to do. I'm wicked smart. And, and did you notice that all of these temptations, the temptation to believe that we are omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscient, are all characteristics that belong only to God himself. So the temptation is to think that we can be God. Even Jesus, who in his human, in human flesh was the embodiment of God himself, even Jesus had limitations. Hold on. Because he was a human. Think about that. God chose to become a human being. Here's what I mean. You're like, How do you mean Jesus had limitations? He could only be one place at one time. Think about that. He gave up the ability to be omnipresent for his time here on earth. He could be in one place at one time. He got tired. He got hungry. He got thirsty. And in the end, he died. Death is a limitation. Just because he was a human being, because he had limitations in his humanness, he said no all the time. He said no to good things all the time. Jesus was swimming in a flood of need, but he accepted his identity as the Messiah of human flesh. Paul talks about this in Philippians 2. And he accepted his calling to usher in the kingdom of God, and with that he accepted his limitations. Because listen, at the end of his life, there were still a lot of people who doubted him. There were still a lot of people who didn't believe that he was who he said he was. There were still a lot of sick people. There were still, pe still people who were dying. There were a lot of people who were far away from the kingdom of God. And in his dying breaths, when it looks like the mission wasn't accomplished, in his dying breaths from the cross, cross, he said, it is finished. My point is, we need to know our identity. We need to know our calling. And we need to know our limits. And we need to come to the place where we are at peace with all three. I don't know what that looks like for you. You're like, great, what was the point of all this? So uh, to end, I thought we'd wrap up with a couple of questions for you to ask of yourself. So the first question is about identity, and it's simply, who are you? If you were brought before uh, some people like John was and said, who are you? How would you answer that? Maybe some, some of you are like, no brainer, this is who I am. Others of you are like, no idea, I don't even know how to start to answer that question. Maybe you're just starting to figure it out. Question two is about calling, and that's what are you called to do? What are you made for? If you've ever struggled to answer this, maybe you need to ask it in the opposite. What are you not made for? Then the question about limitations is, what are your limitations? What are you living, where are you living outside of your limitations right now? Where is there emotional unhealth in your life because you have pushed beyond your limits in some area? And you've done it over a long time. So we're going to do what we've done a couple times in this series. Uh, we're going to take a couple minutes just to sit in silence, kind of, and reflect on these questions. We're going to leave these questions on the screen. We're going to play some music because we all know that the Holy Spirit can only speak to us when there's soft, quiet, instrumental music speak, playing. Honestly, it's because we don't like awkward silence. So we're going to play some music, but we're going to sit and just listen to the Spirit of God. Think on these things. You might want to write some things down during these couple of minutes. But at the end of, of a couple minutes of introspection, we're going to uh, turn up the music and listen to a song that really speaks to me, and I think it might speak to you as well. So let's just uh, 
Listen to the Holy Spirit right now. in my mind that say I'm not enough Every single lie that tells me I will never measure up Am I more than just the sum of every high and every Once again, just who I am because I need to know.
Every failure, God, you'll have every victory.